Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, moderator of meaningful conversations and convener of community. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. I'm so glad you've joined us. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us to share your story. It's just a privilege to talk with you as someone diagnosed with CIDP because we don't often talk with folks diagnosed with diseases other than MS. And so it's a real treat to connect with you. Yeah, thanks, Jen. I really appreciate this opportunity to to talk about uh, my story and and, uh, what I've gone through with HSCT and, and what I'm still going through. Sure, because it is a journey. And I know that listeners will appreciate hearing more about your story. So what if you start us off by telling us a little bit more about how you came to be diagnosed? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, most people who have been diagnosed with a rare disease will appreciate this. You first start to develop some strange symptoms. Yeah, I had neuropathy in my feet and in my hands. And My doctor didn't know what to do about that. They thought that perhaps it was um, stress or that, you know, they kept saying carpal tunnel, but I was like, yeah, but, you know, I have neuropathy in my feet. I'm not sure that that would cause it. Right. So they thought, yeah. And um, so it took a long time. It took me over uh, nine months and two different neurologists. And in the process of that, I had lots of tests spinal taps. I had to have a sural nerve biopsy, but none of those things were really um, informative. They didn't help lead towards a diagnosis. And over the course of that nine months, I was just progressing worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I think uh, like a lot of other folks, you just get, I got lucky. I got lucky in that a uh, a friend of a friend of a friend recommended a neurologist and I called to make an appointment. That appointment was like almost a year out. Oh, wow. Yeah. But then uh, through a cancellation, uh, I got in on her schedule on a Friday afternoon and I went in and she did uh, um, a nerve conduction test. And those are brutal. uh, Yeah, those weren't fun. Right. And she said to me, I, I know that you're probably not expecting this. Uh, so she's a, she's a neurologist that works with a teaching hospital. And she said, but if I admit you to the hospital right now, I could probably start you on IVIG, you know, within 24 hours. And if you respond to IVIG, that will be our diagnostic for CIDP. Oh, that fascinating. You have, that, that you have CIDP. And it was a big shock, right? I was definitely sure. not expecting that, but it was the best decision. I just said, all right, let's, let's do it. So I was admitted to the hospital and started my first round of IVIG. They ran it over 24 hours because there can be, you know, people can react to it. And um, sure, um, I was at that point where I could barely walk. I couldn't move my left arm or hand or anything. I was very limited in the things I could do. My first round of IVIG 
you know, didn't really seem like it had done much. So we, they started the second round and I just remember looking down at my left hand and it had, and it started to move. Mm. And that was, it was just amazing. Um, cause it was like, all right, it's working. It's IVIG. And so wow, that's how I got my diagnosis of CIDP. Very fascinating. And for, for about, so that was in 2014. And for about five years, I was able to manage my CIDP really well with, um, I would get IVIG infusions, uh, every two weeks Wow. and I could live, yeah, but I could live a really normal life that way. And I could do it through home health care, So I didn't have to go into a clinic. Um, I would have a home health nurse come and set it up for me, run it over about five hours. And it, it was, it was a lifestyle that I got used to, right? We, sure. we, we, adapt, we adapted to it and it worked great. And I was, like I said, I, um, I'm a professor. I was able to do my job. I, I like to, I'm not a runner, but I like to run 10 Ks. I could do that. And that was all great. And that worked really well for me for about five years, like I said, and then things started to change. Mm. What do you think triggered the change? It's hard to know for sure. But I think that a lot of us will recognize that stress can really contribute yes. to your disease. And I think that stress might have been a part of it. Although, you know, you try to, you, you try to retell the story. Um, and at the time I didn't feel particularly more stressed uh, than at any other time, but you never know. Um, other people can just, you know, you become refractory to particular medicines and so that could have been what was happening as well. Uh, I was the IVIG was simply being less uh, effective mm, for me. Sure, so many possibilities. It is hard to pinpoint. Right, um, but I, you know, I wouldn't for myself. I wouldn't have ruled out stress as 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 a contributor, honestly. Sure. So, when did you find HSCT? Yeah. Well, it's um, it's very interesting. So I had first heard about HSCT through a Facebook fundraiser that an old friend of mine was doing to raise money for her HSCT oh. um, at, yeah, at Clinica Ruiz in Mexico. And this was more than three years ago. Um, she has MS and actually, so she went to uh, Clinica Ruiz and the HSCT has worked great for her. Mm. And so I knew that it existed. Um, but at that time, you know, many years ago, my CIDP was under control. Right. So, so I wasn't thinking of HSCT as an option for me at all. And, and frankly, I had forgotten about it. Um, but then towards the end of 2019, I just, I just started to decline rapidly. And I just went through my neurologist was like, this is a very, this is very aggressive right now. We need to hit it aggressively. So I've tried, um, cell sept, lots of different steroids, uh, for months and months, I finally had to start. Um, I got a central venous catheter and started plasmapheresis, mm. uh, and cytoxan. So we were doing monthly plasmapheresis, do five in a row and then a dose of cytoxan. Goodness. Uh, and then I even tried rituxan. And so all of those things, and I was still declining. And that brought me, I remember it was uh, in June of 2020 and I was lying on the couch and I had been in and out of the ICU and I was just, you know, in bad shape emotionally and physically. Of course. I was feeling, oh yeah, my gosh. I was, 
I was feeling very desperate. I was feeling scared. Um, and someone had posted a link to the Denver HSCT clinical trial in a CIDP uh, Facebook. It was in someone's comment. Mm. And I, and I just, I remember I clicked on the link. I read through the trial criteria. I saw that CIDP was listed as one of the autoimmune diseases that they were, that they were using in the, that they were treating in the trial. And I just, I don't know how else to describe it. I knew at that moment I was going to be in the trial. Oh, wow. I just knew it. Of course, I didn't know. I mean, I had a lot of um, (laughs) things to uh, uh, test to pass to get into the trial, but I don't know. I just clicked the link. I read it and I said, this is what I'm doing. I was so sure. Wow. Do you think some of that confidence stemmed from your friend who had done so well, even though it was a different disease, just knowing their success? Yes, I do. I think, you know, I think that's one of the, I mean, honestly, one of the absolute benefits of your podcast is that when you hear people's positive stories, it helps put your mind at ease. And for me, I, to know that even a friend of mine had gone through it and was, had had a positive outcome helps to put your mind at ease, which isn't to say that there aren't risks. Of course there are. And right. we want to be honest. We want to be honest about them. And, you know, um, but yes, it definitely helped. That's so great. And just great to hear that the podcast has helped too. Um, so thank you for listening and even sharing that. But I'm curious to know then, how quickly did you pursue getting into the Denver trial and how long did that take? Um, yeah, let's see. So in I saw the trial June, I forget even which day, June of 2020. I wrote to them immediately. Um, I think a week later, uh, one of the people that work on intake got back to me, requested documents. I put them together immediately, uh, sent those back. We had a video conference meeting with Dr. Nash and other people on his team to, you know, do more screening and ask about, you know, my particular case. And, you know, the, it's a clinical trial. So, you know, a lot of people won't qualify for it. And there are definitely criteria that you have to meet, uh, including that you have to be refractory for at least two types of treatment. Mm. And and for me, that wasn't a problem. I sure. have been you know, declining and failing on a lot of them. And so at that time, you know, you have to, uh, you actually have to go and do dental work and make sure that um, you have a dental clean bill of health. And we got in the car and drove to Denver at the end of August. And I started my pre-testing on September, I think, 2nd. My first pre-test test was actually a COVID test. Oh, right. Um, Yep, because all of this is happening in COVID. And um, so we, we live in Arizona, and so it was really convenient. Denver was, you know, very convenient for us to be able to drive to. And my husband and I both have jobs where we can work from home. So that was another benefit. Sure. And so I would say, yeah, so from seeing that link in June of 2020 to my pre-testing in September, that's how long it took me to start to engage with the Denver clinical trial. Yeah, that's pretty quick considering yeah. COVID. Even just for comparison, when I found the clinical trial that Dr. Burt was running, I found it in April of 2016. And it was like November when I was finally there for testing. So oh, like wow, seven yeah. months later. Yeah. 
And that was not during times of COVID, <laughs> but it can take a while, right? It definitely can. And also, I guess I didn't appreciate that I um, was also lucky in that that trial had been closed for a while because of COVID. Sure. They probably weren't recruiting actively. No, not for, I think, you know, a, a while at that point. And they were just starting up again. So you, how did testing go? Clearly you qualified and everything. So how was your experience with HSCT? Yeah, um, that is a, that is a complicated question. Yes. Um, so let's see. Um, one of the hardest things I will say was um, because it, because of the COVID protocol. So at the time when I, so I, I went through the tests, there are a lot of tests um, you know, x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, um, bone marrow biopsies, all sorts of blood work and did everything. You, yeah. Right? Did you get to do the, uh, pulmonary function test? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hated that test so much. <laughs> oh yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. Not, not my favorite test at all. Although the bone marrow biopsy test was my least favorite. Sure. Well, and I think even the E not EKG, the, um, the nerve conduction test is miserable. Mm, those are bad. Yep. Um, but so then I, so I was doing at the time I was doing plasmapheresis twice a week just to remain stable. Mm. And every time we tried to reduce the frequency, I would decline. And so, you know, Dr. Nash was really cognizant of that and I could get the plasmapheresis at CBCI and I was doing that twice a week while we were doing all of the testing. Um, and I checked into the hospital. And one of the hardest things was because of the COVID protocol for Denver, I wasn't allowed any guests. Mm. Um, and so I was, you know, I had to hug my husband in the front elevator in the hospital lobby with, you know, people walking by trying to, you know, be invisible and uh, knowing that I wouldn't see my husband for you know, three to four weeks. And, you know, that when I did see him again, everything would be changed. Yeah. Uh, so that was very hard. I bet. But, but, you know, as you know, uh, the nurses, the technicians, doctors at CBCI, but also everywhere, they're incredible. And they keep you, know, you and, busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they really do. And they take excellent care of you. Um, and of course, you know, my husband and, and friends and family and all would would video conference um, on the days that I felt like it and call sure. in and check on me, check on me constantly. So, so what about a most memorable experience during your time there? Let's see. The, the Denver protocol is Milo. So it is, it is rough. And I, um, the day after that, my, the day after my stem cells were reintroduced, I developed engraftment syndrome. And, and that, that was really, really rough. I had a 105 fever for a Yikes. few days and they, um, what they, you know, what they actually do is, um, kind of just pack you on ice wow. to try to bring, to bring your fever down. And it's very painful. Um, it's a, it's a memorable experience and that it is a very miserable experience. Sure. I can't imagine. I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah, it it was unfortunate. It's it's uncommon to have engraftment syndrome, right? Especially um, with your own stem cells, right? Uh, but it can happen. Um, but you know, 
Dr. Nash and, and actually the whole BMT team, you know, they're very aware of all of these potential problems. And so they're on it. And, you know, I was on, they put me on a lot of steroids and, you know, just to get that under control and got it under control eventually. And I am still dealing with some residual, um, it's called graft versus host disease symptoms. And those flare up and I've had some problems, uh, after I was released from the hospital in, I was released from the hospital sort of early November then early December, uh, I had a big flare and ended up back in the BMT ICU where in Denver, just, in Denver. So that was an important, um, thing. My husband and I decided that we wanted to stay in Denver near Dr. Nash for six months after treatment, even though you're only required to stay for, I think, about 30 to 45 days after mm. you're released from the hospital. But we, like I said, we could work from home. We didn't need to rush back to Arizona. So we sure. decided to stay in Denver. And, you know, I think that decision might have saved my life. I'm really glad we did that. Um, my insurance helps to cover travel up to $10,000, which is, I think, very common for insurance. Yeah. I've definitely, I definitely heard a lot of other people say that too. So it was something that we could do. And I'm glad we did because when I had this graft versus host flare, I'm just really glad that I was able to go right back to the BMT team that had treated me. Yes. And they, they knew everything about me. And they're like, okay, well, we're just, we're going to put her on heavy steroids, heavy antibiotics. I couldn't keep my blood pressure up. Um, there was evidence potentially of sepsis as well. So it was just a big mess. But again, they took excellent care of me. I was only then there for a, a week and then I was recovering again. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, yeah, still a terrible experience. Oh, yeah. No, it, yeah, I don't recommend. <laughs> I don't recommend graft versus host. Not well, that you have not, any. Yeah, it's choice. nothing we can control. No. And so it's well, just good to talk to you on this on this side of things, right? And to know that you are recovering. Yes. And the symptoms are getting milder with each flare. And what I've read and heard is that most people can recover fully from this within a year or so. Um, some people end up with some chronic symptoms, but for the most part, I think it's a very manageable side effect, even though you know, immediately it, it can be really hard. So you're about six months post transplant. Yeah, a little, a little under. Yeah, a little under six months. My my stem cell birthday was October 19th. Mine was October 18th. No way. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what's funny is that my actual birthday is October 18th. So I really appreciated that my stem cell birthday is the day after. Yeah, that's such a great thing to celebrate year after year. How cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder of, of how much has changed. Yeah, well, and life and all the new possibilities that come with birthdays. Yes. You'll never forget, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't be able to. And and that's the that's the real important point to make is that I, you know, I had some issues with graft versus host disease, um, you know, and, and just the normal issues that people do have with Milo chemo. It's, it's a tough chemo. Um, but the one thing is that 
I got my uh, central venous catheter pulled on November 24th. I'd had it in for almost a whole year. Oh, wow. And I haven't had to do anything to treat CIDP since my HSCT. I haven't, I've had no plasmapheresis, no IVIG, nothing. And my neuropathy in my hands and feet is almost completely gone for the first time. Yeah. For the first time in seven years. Wow. Wow. How does that feel? It's, it's impossible to describe. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. Cause it's, I think what happens to us with a, with chronic diseases is that you continue to accept your new normal, but you never imagine that your new normal might be symptom free. Yeah. So many possibilities there. Yeah. And, and so that's where I am now. And like we said, it's, I'm a little less than six months out. And so things could change. Um, but right now I think, you know, there's no argument that HSCT likely saved my life and it certainly um, put my CIDP completely in check. That's amazing. So why was it important for you to participate in the podcast? Kind of for this reason. I, I want more people with CIDP to know that HSCT is an option for them and I want to help those folks figure out if it's the right choice for them. And it may not be the right choice, right? But I at least want to help contribute information that's going to allow people to make that informed decision about what's best for them. You know, CIDP is a rare disease, and so it has limited treatment options. And I think what happens is people end up at the end of that road with their doctor, where their doctor is basically saying, I've tried everything I can, but that doctor doesn't likely know how effective HSCT is. There are studies that show how effective it is for CIDP. The evidence is there that it works. Um, Doctors may not be aware of it. So we need to help patients educate themselves so that they, you know, know what's out there and what's available to them. Sure. And hopefully bring it up to their doctors and hopefully the doctors are willing to listen or just investigate those articles and the data out there that does show effectiveness. Yeah. And I was like, I can't stress how grateful I am for my neurologist because she was always willing to try something. And when I sent her the CID, uh, the the Denver clinical trial link, she said, yeah, I support you trying this. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I know that many patients don't have that type of support that they need from their neurologist, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't try to go and pursue it anyway. (laughs) Sure. Or find another neurologist and their opinion. If, If, yeah. Especially with all the research out there. And we're trying to connect people with that research and even connect doctors with other doctors to just have the conversations, right? Exactly. And, you know, for some people are are very comfortable reading medical journals and, and, and medical papers, and some people aren't. So I think it's also really helpful to help distill that information too. Oh, absolutely. And just translate for the everyday person. Yeah. So did you have to do any of that for insurance? It sounds like they covered everything. Because you were accepted, ultimately accepted into the trial, and thankfully you were not part of the 
placebo arm. Well, um, there there is no placebo in this Denver clinical trial. This is a phase two. Okay. So everyone who's admitted into the trial gets the HSCT. That's so good to clarify. Right. And so that is very different from, for example, the BMS trials where you might be randomized into a placebo group, right? Or into a a drug group. Sure. Sure. Right. No. And so you were accepted into the trial and then did they pursue insurance coverage on your behalf? They do. That whole team is fantastic. I mean, they took it, they basically took it from there and they said, um, you know, we're, we are finding more and more that insurance companies are not denying this, but if they do, we'll just go back and we'll pursue again and we'll pursue again. And I didn't have to do anything myself. They pursued it. My insurance approved everything except for, um, I think there was one element that they considered experimental. And so the clinical trial picked that up. Oh, wow. And so they covered everything else. And like I said, they covered up to 10K in travel costs. And they assigned me a, um, a case manager who would check in with me monthly, check in with me monthly. Um, and so, again, like, I'm very appreciative to have such great insurance that covered this and didn't give me a, a big hassle about it. Um, and I know not everyone is in that boat, but these intake folks who are helping patients are finding more and more that insurance companies are seeing HSCT as a treatment and not as a, a fully experimental um, category for autoimmune disease. Sure, which is so, so relieving <laughs> because yeah, it's such a cost savings to them. Right. Man, right. plasmapheresis twice a week, I can't imagine how much that costs. Exactly. And I was, you know, my, I was ready. I was prepared to go to them with numbers and be like, how expensive have I been to you already? Right. Right. <laughs> but I, I didn't need to. That's so amazing. That was, I, that, I do feel really grateful and uh, lucky about that. And so I want to just say for, I did ask the, the intake folks for the Denver clinical trial, what the status is now. And they let me know that right now there's a wait list for Denver and this clinical trial is in conjunction with Fred Hutchinson in Seattle, but Seattle is also full. They're still doing pre-screens in Denver for a wait list. And they've actually asked the, um, like the, the study IRB for additional slots. So they're hoping that they might be able to take more patients, but they don't have approval for that yet. But, the, but my point for this is to say that if you're interested in the Denver, if folks are interested in the Denver trial, they should still contact them and do the pre-approval process and get on a wait list. Oh yeah, for because, sure. Yeah. And then the other thing is that they are offering off trial for MS and for systemic sclerosis patients who awesome. meet their eligibility. Not yet doing that for CIDP patients, but they're actually working on a set of guidelines for it and expect that they should be able to do off-trial CIDP as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for clarifying all of that valuable information with them. Sure. And, and there's one final thing, which um, is that they are also about to open up a BMS 
in conjunction with the University of Colorado. So nice. Yeah. So that would be one other potential trial to for people to consider. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because the big question out there is, you know, where can I get HSCT? Right. Where can I get it? And and then for other folks, it's the Milo versus non-Milo, which mm-hmm. I do get. And so, yeah, just to clarify, the Denver is a Milo. Right. Treatment. Right. Which is more doses. I think almost twice the the dosage of a non-Milo ablative. Right. And also different, different chemotherapies as well. Mm, Right. And it's so interesting just to think through, you know, folks that maybe have aggressive forms of the disease. I don't know, my mind in some ways rationalizes myeloablative to tackle those aggressive forms. I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but I don't know. That was. I think it would be an interesting long-term study. Yeah, I, you know what, that was part of my thinking as well, which was that I had looked, um, I looked up the the protocols for, uh, for Russia and for Mexico. And I saw that, you know, cytoxan and rituxan are listed there, you know, and myself having already taken those drugs, right. and they hadn't really worked yet for me. I was willing, I was like, you know what, I'm the Milo option is probably the option that I need. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how I was viewing it as well. Sure. It's that mind game we play with ourselves. (laughs) And so where did you stay in Denver? If they ask that you, that you remain nearby for a good month to 45 days after, do they provide facilities or did you find like an alternative place to stay during those early days in recovery? Yeah, they don't provide facilities, but they do. Uh, someone will work with you to find housing. Um, but we just did it. We actually just found an Airbnb that is literally s- six minutes from the hospital. And, and we, you know, we wanted to make sure that that would be covered um, under the travel. And it is. So that wasn't a problem. You don't have to stay in a hotel. Um, so that was, you know, great peace of mind for us that we could stay in this uh, well, first it was an Airbnb, but then we really just ended up renting this apartment. The the owner, you know, was just a, a wonderful and nice person. And we explained our situation and she was really willing to work with us on that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's good to think, especially in times of COVID, that you weren't sharing like HVAC systems with a lot of other people saying like that you would be in a hotel. That's what we were concerned about, right? That's why we wanted our own independent mm-hmm. apartment and, you know, a place with a, uh, a kitchen so that, you know, we can make our own food. Sure. Which hopefully has helped somewhat with recovery. It has. I mean, my husband has become a smoothie expert, <laughs> makes delicious smoothies. I highly recommend them. I told him he should start a business. <laughs> so how is recovery going so far at almost six months out? Um, I've had ups and downs for sure. And, um, I, I definitely having an appetite. I have not had a strong appetite. I've been really, you know, forcing myself to eat well. And, um, we take walks every day and just forcing myself to move through that part of it is I think really helpful for recovery. Um, and then there are things that you just don't have control over. I, I go in for, um, First they were weekly and then they were every two weeks and now we're up to every month check-in or they check in on blood work. And at one point 
I had gone almost fully neutropenic again. So that was, you know, disappointing, but we got on top of it. I got a, a big shot of Granix and, you know, started building my um, blood cells back up again. So some things, you know, it's up and down. Like it's like everyone says, it's a roller coaster. Sure. Um, and certainly the graft versus host disease, my symptoms have been uh, mostly uh, GI related skin rashes uh, and, and bone and muscle ache. And those can be managed with steroids. Um, but I've gotten a few flares on those as well. And I'm not grateful for that at all. But the one thing that I am grateful for is that it has forced me to slow down mm. and to really take care of myself more than I probably otherwise would have. I wanted to just go back out gangbusters, and not pay attention to what my body was telling me. Yeah, especially after you spend so much time in isolation and in, in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice mm-hmm. that your husband's been with you in recovery. So how did that, like, what was the cost to him while you were inpatient? I know you got to connect through like video chats and things, but was he super stressed out for you? Yeah, I, this is, this is something that we have um, been opening up more about and talking to each other about more. Um, but I think, you know, for the last year and a half or so, we've both been trying to protect each other from each other's worries and concerns and fears. And yeah, I think it was very hard for him to, you know, pack me off to the hospital and then go back to some random apartment in Denver and just sit by himself and worry. Sure. And feel totally out of control. Right. And we have great support groups, wonderful family and friends. And, you know, people were checking in on him all the time. And But still, that doesn't, you know, take away the fear that you have, you know, especially, you know, maybe in the middle of the night you wake up and, oh, what's happening to Rachel right now? You know, how is she? Um, so, so I think, hard. yeah, I think it's been an emotional toll. Um, but we're, you know, now we're talking about it more and sharing how we were feeling about things at the time. And it's been really interesting to, to kind of compare, you know, the times when I was sort of maybe most scared about something, he was very clear eyed and vice versa. Oh, so in that way, yeah. And that way I think we've managed to help each other a lot. Sure. Support each other in that like yin yang. Yeah. But there's, you know, you cannot overstate the burden that this puts. I mean, overnight, my husband became my caregiver Mm. and that's just such a shift in the dynamic of your marriage even. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. And he had to do everything uh, for me at, at, at certain points. So now we're, we're shifting that dynamic back and it's pretty funny because you know, I hadn't driven a car for over a year and a half. And I was saying, well, I think I could drive now. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm an adult human. So I'm going to make that decision myself. <laughs> well, it is interesting though, just all the shifts that occur that are unexpected in a way, right? And you don't right. find yourself even thinking through or planning for anything until you're in the moment. And then at least you were fortunate enough to be forced to slow down, right? So that you could fully be in the moment and start to think about how do we make this shift? 
That's right. And as you said, especially, you know, yes, they do keep you busy in the hospital a lot, but you also do have a lot of downtime and a lot of alone time and how you spend that time is important, right? So you have a lot of time with yourself. So if you can sit and be with yourself and reflect on things, I think that can help you. I completely agree. Uh, (laughs) I didn't turn on the TV for nine days while I was in, in the hospital. I just wasn't even interested in the noise and the negativity and distraction. Like I just wanted to be with myself. Yeah. I, I also found that I had a very hard time concentrating. I had, um, pretty strong, I guess, chemo brain. I was very foggy, very kind of not fully with it. It happens, right? That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And something that's good to share, right? So that people can be aware going into it. Right. You know, and, and, you know, starting off, they said, okay, you'll be in here for about, you know, three or four weeks, depending on how you do. And, you know, try to um, create a schedule and some habits and and do things that are going to make you feel normal. And they really encouraged me to take a shower, take a shower every day, not only for, um, you know, for, uh, issues that you might have with infections, but also just to get yourself up moving around if you can. And, um, you know, doing daily type of routines. And that was another thing that I think I'm so grateful for. Aside from, you know, there were a couple of days, especially during engraftment syndrome, but also during some other times when I I couldn't get out of bed, I was bedridden. Um, But other than that, I wasn't on a bed alarm. So I was allowed to get up on my own and go to the bathroom when you had to and things like that. And just those tiny bits of freedom were really helpful mentally. And I, um, just because of space in, on the BMT floor, I ended up being on the wing where there are the aloe patients. So we were all, every door was closed. So that could be very isolating. Sure. Um, But they, yeah, but they encouraged me to, you know, take my IV pole for a walk when I could, you know, just around that. Well, movement, yeah, movement is key. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Even when you really just don't feel like moving. Right. Especially when you don't, right? Right. And, And then, so that means if you can't get out of bed, you know, try to just move your neck and your head and your arms if you can. So important. What other advice might you offer to others who find themselves even newly diagnosed with CIDP? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, okay. I think I have a, yeah, I have a few things. One is that one is that you, you should allow yourself to fully feel the grief and the sadness and the fear and whatever it is, you know, for, for what you think you've lost. Mm. And you shouldn't beat yourself up for being a little selfish or a little self-centered when something really awful is happening. Um, I don't know, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with this thing called the ring theory, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? Where you're, you know, you're, if you're in crisis, you individually are the center ring. Mm. And then the people that are the closest to you are the next ring out and so on and so forth. And these rings form around this center bullseye, which is the person in crisis. 
And no one, of course, wants to be in that center ring. But the, the rule with the ring theory is that all the empathy goes inward. So if you're in the outermost ring, you just all you have is empathy for all of the inner rings. And then you can dump out. So if, if you're in a smaller ring, you never dump in to a smaller ring. You dump out to a larger ring. So what does that mean? It means that for the person in crisis, they can dump everywhere. <laughs> right. And all empathy is focused on them and then on the people closest to them and then the next ring and the next ring. And it was, I thought, a really helpful way for thinking that at every point, at, at any point in someone's life, you are going to be in the center ring. Sure. And don't feel bad when people want to help you or want to, yeah, just take care of you. Allow them to do that. It can be one of the toughest things to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm tearing up right now. <laughs> well, it's such an important thing in life, right? To To find those support mechanisms and allow others to help you because they do want to be part of the support team, right? They do want to be part of holding others up and and until you can allow them to be in that space, what you resist persists. Right, right. Yeah. And I also have, a, I think, just something that was a practical piece of advice. And some people might have already done this. But if you haven't done this already, you know, write out your living will. Write out your advanced directives. Designate your um, medical power of attorney. And you know, tell people your wishes. I, I've come to think that this is, you know, possibly one of the single greatest kind of acts of love that you could give to your family because mm. you don't want them to have the burden of worrying about what you would have wanted. Right. It's such a hard place to be at when you're completing that. But yes, if you consider it as an act of love yeah, for your family, then it it helps to shift that focus, right? And makes it a little bit easier. It'll be around for a while <laughs> because right. you you will be around for a while thanks to HSCT. Yeah, exactly. So uh, being able to, like you said, being able to approach it from this different perspective, that this is an act of love helps to have, it's a very difficult difficult conversation to have, but, you know, we we should be more honest about that. And we should be able to talk more freely about that, especially with the people that we love. So anything that can make it easier. Yeah. Brilliant. I love it. So what about a superpower that you gained from your experience with HSCT? Um, You know, I think definitely that most people that go through something that's so aggressive, but also so life-changing I feel a stronger sense of empathy and just a, it's something that we're aware of, but a reminder that all of us are carrying things. We're carrying invisible burdens mostly. And that if we can just sit back and remind ourselves of that in in every interaction that we have, you know, for example, at first I was not sharing my disease with my, my colleagues, for example. Mm. And when, and when my disease was largely invisible, I could hide it. But then my attitude shifted and I started sharing what I was struggling with. And, 
you know, even started telling people, you know, I'm going to go and do HSCT. And as I started sharing that, people started sharing right back. And, and suddenly your relationship shifts, right? It's less superficial and you create, you know, genuine connections now. And you can create that empathy for people and then remind yourself that even though people aren't going around telling you what's burdening them, there's something. Always. There's always something going on. Yes. So that and um, the perspective, I think a perspective that each of us have, you know, each of us have so much, uh, you know, passion and energy and people who are content with their life have found a way to channel that energy into the things that matter to them. Mm. And so for me, I've been focusing on trying to challenge myself to, you know, what is it that really matters to me? And that takes courage. It takes constant self-examination. And then it takes um, focus to focus solely on those things and not worry about things that, you know, you used to worry about. Don't sweat the small stuff, I guess. Very trite, but true. So true. So true. And maybe some of that comes with age, but yeah. certainly, <laughs> certainly an experience as transformational as HSCT. And even the complications that you had, right, with craft versus host and that scary fever, I'm sure your mind must have been reeling with all kinds of doubts. It was. And, you know, there were days, there were a couple of days when I was out of it. And those, I think, were probably the days that were hardest for my husband. Um, but again, the, the BMT team are excellent. You know, they would call him and give him a daily update. Oh, good. To put his mind at ease. Sure. That's got to be so hard. Yeah. So hard. And, but like you said, you know, the team is great at supporting you to work through it and, and for him to work through it. So that's phenomenal to know that the team there is so high quality and caring. Right. They, and they are, I mean, I, um, I had to absentee vote from my hospital bed and they helped me with that. Awesome. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's awesome yep. yep so is there anything else you're grateful for about your experience with hsct that has maybe gone unspoken um let me think it hasn't gone unspoken but i i really am i'm so grateful for my husband i mean he and my family and friends, but my husband, he carried me, you know, sometimes literally carried me through the last few years. And, you know, tragically, I've heard of, you know, people with chronic diseases whose, whose partners, you know, leave them, they can't handle that new reality. And mm. I'm not judging that at all. But my heart just breaks for those folks yeah. who don't have that support, because we all all need it, and deserve it no matter what. Uh, so I'm grateful for my husband. And as I've said a few times, I'm grateful for Dr. Nash's team, for the BMT team. Every person there treated me with deep kindness. Uh, and they're just, you know, amazing professionals. Um, one of the first, the first day I was there, the nurses made me a personalized collage with beautiful photos um, that had a schedule of all of my chemo um, with the photos. <laughs> That's beautiful. It was, it was really thoughtful. 
they're just very thoughtful. And I guess I'm most grateful for a second chance in my body. Uh, like I said, I was, I was at a point where, you know, I was in a wheelchair. I wasn't able to move very well at all. I was in pain and nothing was working. And now I am very far away from that. It's not to say it might not happen again, but right now I am grateful that I, that I have this body that's largely working the way I want it to work. <laughs> sure. And not that we're always in control of that, but yeah, to have the chance at a sense of normalcy again. Yeah. And to really appreciate it. Well, may we continue to not take things for granted, right? Right, right. Exactly. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing so many beautiful insights with us. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. I I really appreciate you creating this podcast and and giving people, you know, this platform uh, to share their story and and also to share gratitude, right, for everyone that has, you know, taken care of us through this. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned at the beginning, like if if it's just that small drop in the bucket of helping to set the mind at ease, right? Before you venture into such an unknown, right? I mean, even after having heard stories on the podcast, surely there was plenty of unknown for you. It's so true, right? And, you know, you you know, I was, I would be lying in bed listening to podcasts, trying to glean any bit of information that I could and, you know, about what the experience was going to be like and then be, you know, but I appreciate it. It's hard to describe what those couple of weeks in the hospital are like. It is hard to describe. Yeah. Well, until you live it, right? Yeah. Yep. And make it through. And, and I guess the, so the podcast really just the intention is to help put the mind at ease before you go to have your experience because we are all so unique. Yes. And everyone's experience in the hospital is unique. And maybe some people love to watch TV while they're there, you know? Right. And kudos yeah, for- to them, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe, and, and maybe they don't. And, and maybe they struggle a lot more. And, and maybe we don't talk about the struggle enough because we don't want to scare anyone. But I really appreciate you sharing more about the graft versus host disease because it can happen to anyone. And it is a risk. I mean... This is a serious medical procedure. Yes, it is. And, you know, they can't anticipate who it's going to happen to either. No. I, I did ask, I asked about that as well, of course, and no. Um, and then also, unfortunately, I said, well, does this mean that um, I'm having a great response? Because essentially, right. Yeah, and they're like, no, it doesn't mean that either. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, it's interesting, the stories our minds create right? In order to bring comfort. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or even just trying to talk ourselves logically into something that maybe scientifically doesn't make sense. But that's where even just sharing these patient experiences, I think, or at least I hope, brings some peace of mind. I, I, it certainly did for me and I, I'm sure it does for others. I'm sure your story will help inspire others. I really appreciate you sharing. It was great to talk with you. Honestly, thanks, Jen. Oh, yeah. All the best to you and continued health and wellness and the positive direction with recovery. (laughs) Thank you. 
May you never need IVIG or plasmapheresis ever again. That is a great thing to, to wish for. Thank you. Be sure to visit our website where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Alitzauser for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. It has been so great to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us online, on Instagram, or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind, be well. Jen Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician.